Narratives only have the power that you give them. And power is only something that you can give someone. So don't give someone something that is freely yours. Allow yourself the space to cultivate, define, and tell you who you are. Because there will be no one else that can understand or engage with your mind as much or as well as you can. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Hi, welcome back to CWC Talks podcast. I am here today with Rakeem Robinson, and in a moment, I will let Rakeem introduce himself more to you, but he is a doctoral student at the University of Florida who's here today to talk with us about the power of creating counter narratives. And I hope you'll stay tuned because this really has a lot to do with general well-being and countering all of the different forms of negativity and false messaging that's out there in the world that can really shape your sense of identity and self-concept. Um, and also just very relevant to mental health and the counseling process where we're really trying to help people build a different story about themselves and their lives, one that can be healing and help them grow. Um, I'm also here today with John Parker, who is a licensed mental health counselor who joins us in his role on the consultation and referral team at the CWC. And I will let John say a little more about himself too. Um, but first, welcome, Rakeem. Thank you all for having me um, on this episode. If you embark with me for a second on this journey, uh, it's something interesting to see where I am and to think about where I was. It's like um, getting inside of a car and being like, we're going to take a road trip and not knowing where the end and destination will be. But it's knowing that you have to do just enough to get from where you are because there is so much around you that's either inspiring, that's either forceful or something that's uh, really turning your wheels on the inside. So the things that led to me to be like, I need to develop um, education or I need to develop my mind or the skills that I currently have to do more for those around me, i.e. a vehicle of change would be my grandma, my mom, and just the women in my life who've raised me to be the man that I am today. It's really grateful to know that they have poured and invested so much into me I'm taking the time to nurture me and help me to understand that I can be more than the conditions that are around me. Moving around from Mississippi to Tennessee to Texas and even a small period of time in Oklahoma, no place ever felt like home. But everywhere I went, I always made connections. I always was able to relate and develop um, some type of connections to people. Those connections gave a space for me to hear their stories, gave a space for me to understand the things that they were going through. So the work that I currently do is thinking about how to show that those stories not only matter, but resonate with other people. The thing that pushed me to be where I am is knowing that 
if we don't allow a space for others to speak, their stories will often be swept under the rug or never heard. We only hear about the things that are most popular on the news, or we only hear about the things that we're told that we need to know about at this very moment. But stories, stories are things that connects us. Stories are things that build bridges. Stories are things that force us to innovate, force us to change, force us to look at our behavior. Stories are the reasons for getting the vehicle and even thinking that there's a destination that we can go and it doesn't matter where it is, it can be different from where we are. That's beautiful, Rakeem. Thank you so much. Um, John, you want to say a little bit? I'm getting chills here. Um, yeah. I'm like, you want me to follow up with that? I, I, my man just came with the book introduction. I felt like, okay, we just going to sit here. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Come on, Rakeem, read me, the, read me the phone book, sir. Like, I just want to hear you talk. That was powerful. Um, I think that, you know, again, me just, you know, I, I don't have a similar background in terms of moving as, as much as you have, but I have spent time. I was born in East St. Louis, Illinois. Left there, uh, grew up in Southern California. Then I spent a tw- 12 years in, in Northern California, lived in Atlanta for 10 years, lived overseas for a few years, and now I'm in Florida. And I feel like on some level, the places that you lived, I think it's a different, it's a Southern Midwestern experience that's much different than my West Coast experience. And and maybe even my Atlanta is the South, but it's like, is it the South? You know, outside of Atlanta is the South. But Atlanta itself is a little different, right? And so I think that I'm very interested in hearing you and your story and kind of figuring out why narratives are important. I, I kind of have an idea in my mind, like as you were speaking, like narrative and thinking of narrative therapy and just thinking about like creating a story and hearing stories that may have been forgotten because, you know, what they say, history is written by the victor or whatever the case may be. So you lose a lot of stuff, as a, especially as it relates to being a black male myself. And I'm assuming that you identify as that as well. We didn't have that conversation pre-show, so... But yeah, just just, you know, my journeys have led me to realizing that, hey, my gift and skill sets, regardless of what I've done, lie in my interpersonal communication with people, my counseling. I was a journalist back in the day. So I think we might share that type of journalistic like I don't know if integrity is the word, but just in terms of like that story and wanting to know a story and and storytelling or whatever. Um, And so I think, yeah, I'm I'm interested to see where our paths cross in this conversation just to to I'm inspired. bro. I'm ready to go write something right now. I'm like, hey, we got to get to it. Uh, But no. I'm happy. Good to be here. Glad to be here. Let's let's do it. I mean, I don't mind asking you, Rakeem, just about like your journey in terms of like with this narrative and, and really where you got to the place where narrative was important to you, um, if that's OK, unless you had something else. Yeah, I guess the first time was honestly having a conversation with my grandma you know, and it was the realest thing um, that could have happened. My grandma had eight kids, then graduated middle school, but was able to successfully take care of all of them, was able to run her own like clothing shop. But something I didn't know about her history was like she won through quite a bit prior. Um, She was active around the time in Ruval, Mississippi, when um, Fannie Lou Hamer was kind of doing her thing. And she kind of had a clothing shop where she would provide like 
clothes and stuff for those that were in need. But also her and my granddad, TC, had like a little community garden type stuff. And it was just like, I didn't know this was something not only exists inside my family, but this is something that Black people in their own particular like pockets of community would do. Because all we were subject to or all we knew was the violence that they faced and stuff like that. But it's like, that's not the only stories that we see even today, right? Like however many odd years later, right now we only see the stories of black men dying, black women uh, getting killed in prison, black women like getting physically beaten at pools and stuff like that or whatever. But that isn't the story or the narratives of the black experience. So when we think about the way to engage in these particular spaces, it's thinking about where our heart is and our heart is often the way that we invest in these um, particular modalities to see our people succeed. My grandma didn't have much, but whatever she had, everyone else had. Bro, so my grandma is from Ruville, Mississippi. I've, I've never met anybody in my life that's ever heard of that place and or been from there. Like, I don't even like I lost it. Like, I don't know how I wasn't screaming when you were talking, bro. But like, that is wow. That is that is OK. See, we're going to have either a part two or talk online or something, man. We have to make a road trip back to our roots, man. But when you were speaking, I definitely like I tell people all the time, like especially in my line of work. My grandmothers, both sides of my family, have more game and more knowledge than I know than some of these college educated PhD professors. Um, and it's something I think about struggle It's something about like where you come from It's something about what's in you and the things you actually do that kind of supersede education, like, you know, K through 12, you know, postgraduate, all that type of stuff or whatever. And, and the game that comes from life and living a life of struggle and not to say that somebody hasn't struggled, can't have information and, and, and know a lot of things. But often I'm like sitting at the feet of the elders and just soaking up that wisdom. And it's something to that. Um, and that resonates with me, too. Just the idea of like, now I got to call my grandma. Now I got to find out about Ruville. Now I got to find out about these Robinsons. You know what I mean? And see what's going on. Um, but I just think that it's just something special that I think that's a great that's great that you had that experience with your grandma. And I feel like that may have potentially planted seeds and, you know, to, to get you excited about what you what you're doing now. Tell me about like, how, how, how was that for you? Just just having that interaction with your grandmother and being able to have those conversations and like, what did it do for you as a, as a young child? And maybe did it transition or translate into what you're doing now? Um, honestly, it was inspiring. It gave me reasons to want more, to never really settle. I don't have an excuse for anything. Um, she could have gave up not having the resources, so on and so forth. But she changed the narrative of what her story would look like. Most people would have written her off a long time ago, but she's created opportunities, not just for herself, but for other people as well or whatever. Um, but now she has forwarded me the opportunity to where I can be in the place to be like, I'm a black man, you know, like one of the few inside my class and inside UF in particular going for his PhD. Like, this is something that's the first for my family or whatever, but it's only due to the sacrifices and things that my grandma had the chance to be able to do. So it's realizing those connections and how intentional that investment was, because even though people may look at what she went through and what she did and was like, it was so short term. My grandma was thinking long term before I even knew what the long term game was. Bruh, I... I'm really speechless, man, but you already got me in like this 10 minute conversation. Like that is that is crazy. Our, um, well, Sarah, I don't want to, you know, if you have a question to ask, I don't want to not 
give you that opportunity. Okay. I, I will speak up. I am really okay. enjoying. I feel like I'm sitting at I'm sitting at the feet of the elders right now. Aye. too. Okay. So I'll okay. take it. Okay. Okay. Well, I was I was thinking about and maybe Sarah, if you had any input. So there's a a, a, a the, theoretic framework for counseling called native uh, narrative therapy. Um, Rakeem, have you heard of that? Are you familiar with that? Um, I heard of it once, but I haven't okay. did active research in it yet. I mean, I probably butcher it, so Sarah, feel free. But it's just if the idea is is recreating or creating a narrative for yourself and trying to create a trajectory that leads to that, right? And so, if you've had a terrible background, if you've been in and out of systems, if you, you know, if you've you know had problems in your life, if you've had family issues, and all these things have led you to who you are today, you have an opportunity through narrative therapy to recreate and create a destiny in the path that you actually want to travel in. And then you work through those steps to kind of reach those goals. Sarah, does that sound about? Yeah, that's a great introduction. The only thing that I would add, I had the opportunity to get some therapy from someone who really loved this way of working with people. And he, we spent a lot of time talking about power and who had, contributed to the narrative that I had developed about myself and and where those sources of story and self-concept came from. And a lot of it, you know, came came from people in my life who didn't necessarily have my best interests at heart. That's kind of like how the inner critic gets built and how you hear all these negative voices in your head because you've being around something or somebody's kind of input something in you that's maybe not true or just false or just even if it is true, maybe it's true at a time you've outgrown that or you become somebody different. Um, what I think about Rakeem, when you're talking, I'm like, man, talk to me about like how self-identity and self-concept comes about through like the, the the narratives that you're talking about. And then also maybe if you want to if you want to share personally, has any of your research or what you've done uh, kind of help either build or tear down some some of your own uh, narrative? All right, most def. I think the conceptual idea that you're talking about exists in different disciplines, right? So for psychology, of course, you realize that they have their own thing, but inside communications, there's a strategy that's just like narrative and counter narratives. And I think the third dynamic that Sarah talked about is really important is power. So for me, something that I'm finding in research is that the more we look at who is in power at that moment where we receive some form of criticism about ourselves or we receive that form of narration, the harder it is to either A, create a counter narrative in place of it, or B, change the trajectory of where we want to move um, past that. Um, So for me in particular, it was kind of like a battle doing this research. I know kind of like um, a little bit before we talked about research and just like it been a treasure hunt at times because a treasure hunt isn't just finding the egg that is the completion of your research but it's just how i exist with inside of it for me in um, a particular moment i'm doing some research on a broke project this is where we're partnering with the radical communicators network we've been the public interest uh, communication group and we're looking to see how can we break down dominant narratives about poverty and poverty was something that I exist in. And it was just like, and notice I used the word was. And that was because it was something that was often prescribed to me by like governmental systems, by people when I was a little kid at school, just because I had like free lunch and stuff like that. People would be ready to just make jokes and so on and so forth, whatever clothes you would wear. So it was like, all right, to a certain level, um, 
peers and stuff would affect you, but it got to a point to where teachers would also be critical of how much they thought that I would know or be perceived to be educated because I was at that poverty line. But it was something different since I moved around so much. They didn't know what to expect of me. But when I took their like state placement test or whatever and would exceed their expectations, they was like, oh, you, you're uh, different. You're a gifted kid. And I was like, what does it mean to set the bar, be someone that's apart, right? So why does this narrative or why does this construct not just label me, but labels anyone? What does it mean to be impoverished? Impoverished then becomes a mindset or a way that you graph someone into like a dangerous cycle because poverty is not something that someone chooses to be in at times. It's something that we're kind of forced into either A, through lack of resources, or B, through lack of like opportunity, the reason why we had to be in Section A housing, because like my mom just wasn't able to get a job taking care of four kids by herself or whatever. And it's like moving around. That's something that's just hard to do going from state to state, having to uproot things um, in relation to being independent or whatever. So it's like when we think about these things as connected rather than um, independent of one another, we start to understand the complete and full story. <laughs> blowing my mind right now like i just all these dots that are getting connected as you speak i was unfortunately came across a story last uh last night matter of fact about this uh six-year-old boy who got arrested for pulling a flower at the bus stop right so he pulls a tulip or some kind of flower while he's sitting at the bus stop instead of the homeowner or whatever who, whatever you had a bus stop so i can't imagine too many you know it's like public land i would assume but instead of Hey, don't pull these flowers because they're important to me or whatever the case may be. The cops get called. The kid gets arrested. And this is in North Carolina. So now they're going through this process of trying to change the laws and like, you know, to, to raise it up from like six to ten. Like there's a, the minimum age that someone could be arrested in North Carolina is six years old. Like what is happening right now? Right. And so they do the research and they're like the black population of North Carolina is 20 percent. But they're the youth that get arrested are 47 percent of those that get arrested. Right. Um, and again, if this kid is getting arrested for picking a flower, literally the story is like, I need more information or people like to be like, I need the more information story, right? No, he was at a bus stop, picks a flower, didn't fight, didn't kick nobody's dog, didn't throw a rock. He just picks a flower. Um, so when I think about narratives and part of the, one of the articles I was reading is like when a, when a, a person is introduced to the, the legal system, the earlier they are introduced to the legal system, the more likely it is they're end up in the legal system for whatever reasons. And I'm like, if it's legal to arrest six-year-olds, for minor nonsense. Imagine the trajectory of someone's life, like you're saying the narrative, like, oh, because I was impoverished, oh, because I had free lunch, oh, because teachers didn't know what they expect, oh, because kids were teasing me, like the trajectory of someone's life. If we're thinking about the narrative, their story, like what's going on, like, it just blows my mind and just connecting all these dots of like, wow, like people are really set up for failure when they're introduced to certain things that aren't beneficial for them. You know what I mean? And if we're thinking about the prison, the pipeline or the prison pipeline situation, thinking about this kid getting arrested, think about what could have happened to you. Like if people just didn't give you opportunities even to test just because like, oh, this poor kid that he ain't got no sense. He's on free lunch. Why, why we ain't going to test him. We just put him in remedial classes. Like that, that could have set the trajectory based on somebody else's narrative of you based on them, not even knowing you. Right. And so this is like, this is powerful, bro. Like this is, it gets me excited and thinking about what I can do to kind of help with uh, someone else's narrative, like the trajectory of someone's life and how my day to day interactions with people, how that can be of so much benefit, um, even in, at work, you know, even in, in, in it keeps me more grounded in the things that I do. Like, oh, shoot, maybe I should do something different. I don't, I don't want to tell myself I ain't trying to get written up, but I'm just saying that there may be something I need to do that kind of puts me in, in a better position to help with someone's trajectory in their narrative.
So talk to me, talk to me, talk to me about like your story. You've given me a little bit in terms of like how moving and mother having to take care of kids and not being able to maybe plant roots and how that works. But where, where was there any defining moments or any points in your life where you felt like, okay, if I'm looking at the lens of, of my narrative, that this conversation, this interaction, you know, we talked about grandma, but like, was there something later on, like interaction with somebody, something that kind of spoke to you in terms of like, oh, shoot, like this is something that is helping me build my self-identity. This is something that's helping me build my self-concept, something that's creating a narrative for me that that's positive or beneficial. There's a couple of things, right? Like as we navigate through uh, life, there's always something influencing us and it's not always positive, but I think um, something I failed to mention is I'm the oldest of eight. So by the time I was 12, I was already like working and trying to like help support others and stuff like that. So that created a space to where I really had to be intentional about the eyes that was peering up. It's one thing to think about the eyes outside of the household, but when they're that close, you can feel them on a day-to-day basis watching your every move. Um, But then there becomes the influences outside of the house, though. I find myself doing things that it's like, all right, a month down the road, I'm doing like nonsensical stuff and just like, what are you really doing with your life? So I think it's having those particular experiences as well that um, shows me that I need to change the narrative and not waste the opportunity that I've been forward. Um, Because I think oftentimes, like life itself or even the ability to just roam restricted but freely and even with the access that i do have i uh, i used to take for granted but it's having a more mindful state of the things that are around me so three pivotal things happen one being an undergraduate at liberty university um yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to do the whole like be quiet when somebody's speaking in this pocket okay so i'm gonna keep that got it go ahead go ahead No, you good. Liberty was a unique situation, but it kind of set the tone for how I would engage in other spaces. The way that Liberty helped me develop who I was, was helping me to see who I was not. Um, Something that I was able to do was join their debate team. And that really did influence my character a lot. Um, But I wasn't really involved outside of that with a lot of like campus stuff or just really the identity of what it stood for. Other than that, there was... um, a center and a center that was focused on like critical race and um, just gender. I don't want to say harmony, but it looked at the climate of liberty and tried to help us engage in better dialogue were the only two things that I was actively engaged in. But it forced me to challenge the way that I thought before coming to school, the way that I thought while I was at school and the way that I was thinking that I may think past school. towards the end of my career was able to engage in a couple of race dialogues and hear some very divergent perspectives. But that was one thing that stood out to me and it was from a white counterpart. And this uh, particular person kind of indicated that they didn't feel that it was ever a space or a way for them to actively engage in what they thought was the struggle or the fight and feel justified in doing so. I was like, uh, what does it look like to change or create a narrative to where we can have active and healthy like coalition politics? 
um, that was something that that was kind of strong on my heart because even in the way our format that I debated, coalitional style politics was something that I actively like looked into to think about my fight is not just my fight. My fight only becomes important when those that are in power can see the importance of the struggle that I am going through. The second thing or whatever uh, would be the summer in between the master's program and Liberty. Um, I go up to Harvard debate camp for a summer and I just meet some people from all around and we are sitting at a dining room table and we're just having a conversation about like, all right, all the kids are asleep at this point and they're just like, uh, how do you view yourself? What do you think? And at this point, and right, I just graduated college, so I don't know nothing about nothing, but they start to interrogate me in such a way that like I felt uncomfortable, but the way that I started to engage inside that space, because it was a predominantly white space, uh, really showed how much not I cared, but feared what coalition politics could actively look like. So I think that showed uh, one, how they can be in opposition, but also beneficial for one another. But it was a space that needed to happen in order for me to kind of grow and mature and not to be afraid to say something, because I think oftentimes we can exist or ask for certain spaces, uh, but fail to use the voice and the voice that we have power, because there's some people that just can't speak at all. But when I can speak, I should speak. The third and final thing was a conversation I had with Dr. Kelleher. And I know most of these are academic, but it's academic with a lot of undertones of culture and spiritual stuff. But the conversation I had with Dr. Kelleher was kind of after a long, intense, like spiritual weekend. And he kind of indicated that the process of choosing PhD candidates was about the people that they were particularly willing to invest in. But this was the first time that I felt inside my academic career or my life that someone was willing to invest in me. I feel that I was worth the investment. And I don't think how people can realize like how much power that is. Sometimes investment doesn't necessarily mean money. That could just mean time, energy, or even your ears at time. But I think a combination of all three of those things helped me to see little pockets of voids inside my life. But the most defining thing for me would honestly just be my spiritual walk, because alongside all of this, I'm figuring out who I am and who I am is realizing like I am not this or that, but the only way to know what I am is going back to God and understanding how God defines me. I just have to pause. I just have to, these nuggets, man. So let me do this. Since you mentioned faith, I would like to ask about just, again, we're thinking through the lens of narrative. I recently have had a personal uh, enlightenment when it comes to my own faith or whatever, right? Um, and so I feel that I have been practicing principles of the teachings of Jesus Christ for about 10, 20 years. And I intentionally say that uh, to distance myself from Christianity in the terms of what we generally think of in 2021, right? White man's religion type of thing. And so what I have stumbled upon recently with my own personal life, I've, I've lived overseas, I've been to 15 countries, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time and had faith interactions in all these different places, right? Uh, and I've been able to see the infiltration of Western Christianity in places where it shouldn't have 
where it shouldn't be. And what I mean by Western Christianity, I mean the culture of white Western Christianity leaving Europe after it had been introduced to the faith uh, and then having some cultural identity that was made for however long it brewed and then through colonization and certain things, introducing that back into places where it may have already existed, specifically Africa, the Middle East, whatever the case may be. Um, and in my travels, what I have noticed is that Western Christian thought um, does a person, I'll just say for me as a black man and other black people I've run into, and even Asian people, again, I've been to a lot of places, doesn't quite fit a narrative that works well for their life and their experience and how they've grown up and how they see the world. Because when it's not the same, like if you're embedded in a faith that says wear a suit, wear a tie, speak English, use a knife and fork, don't eat with your hands, do, 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 all these cultural things that have nothing to do with the faith. And you're trying to make yourself fit into this box, even how you interact with your peers, how you interact with your wife, how you interact with your family, how you literally interpret things. And maybe you have no idea what the original intent of this writer was 3000 years ago when they wrote this thing. Right. When they give you an analogy or they give you a parable or they give you something and you try to interpret it in the lens of your own existence and you completely miss everything. Trying to make that fit for me for the last 20 years has done more harm than good for my personal life, for my narrative, for my story, for my spiritual walk. Um, and so I really just came to the, to the resolution a, a few weeks ago. It's like, you know, I'm no longer going to try to fit my square following of the teachings of Jesus Christ peg in a round hole of Western Christianity. And I now have to go blaze my, not necessarily my own trail, because I don't want to get off and be weird and do crazy stuff, because I have been in the cold, as we discussed, Sarah and I, in our last podcast. But just the idea of like trying to hone in this narrative and make sure that what I teach my children, how I interact with my wife, how I interact with my neighbor, um, how I love God, how I love others, um, make sure that it fits in a not necessarily a cultural lens, but it actually promotes the faith that I say I proclaim. And it also isn't abrasive. It isn't it isn't rude. It isn't uh, uh, something that someone would be put off by. And I just find myself I can no longer continue to like speak or repeat the things that I have learned in the last 20 years and expect it to have some lasting, a lasting effect is the word I want to use. So if you don't mind talking, you know, as, as much as you want to share, as much as as deep as you want to get into it, have you ever had those moments where you've had to reconcile your faith with what you've been taught of what you've been learned of what you've researched and how has that affected the narrative and the trajectory of your life, even when it comes to your faith? I'm going to do two things. I'm going to give an example of a conversation I had with someone and then um, I'll bounce into me for a little bit. The conversation that me and this particular individual had was about prayer. And they indicated that either through academic things or through um, just different circles that they existed in, prayer just seemed like an action or prayer just seemed like um, doing nothing. But for me, prayer from research I came across, even thinking about um, its connotations with slavery to the real ramifications that we have for it now is a very practical and actionable process. Um, it's the ability to engage with our thoughts and emotions around a particular thing. But once we do that, it invites us to be inside of a space to where we can walk through and see what then becomes the best decision or what becomes the best way of moving forward. I think this becomes a central way to understand what faith looks like. Oftentimes, faith gets distorted because we look at what's here or what's there. So for me, growing up, faith was often distorted. You would have people who would um, 
tell me to do this or tell me to do that to become more like of what they saw, more like of what they thought. But it was never in consistency with the Bible. And I think that what was the confusing part with narrative and trying to understand my self-identity as um, a response of that narrative. Because if we think about the narrative of the Bible and the narrative of Jesus, it's literally to understand, endure suffering, and to bring a symbol of hope so people can have some form of outlet to change. But that only change is to be in a reliance on a God that wants an intimate and intentional relationship with them. Um, not someone that needs to be a median or a person in the middle. There was an instance when I was um, a kid growing up and a particular pastor told me the only way that I could become better is by talking to him about everything that was going on with me. And if I didn't talk to him, I was in sin. Or if I didn't listen to him, I was in sin. But it was like, how do I know that you are always right? Like, what makes you the sole autonomy of X, Y, or Z? Um, so this particular space was when I realized something was off. So I drifted away, but I realized I always strive for something because it was always a real connection for me to understand why then would slaves like sing Negro spirituals? Why then would they try to connect with each other on some like spiritual level? Like there was a heart or a desire to create the community for some reason. So even back then, what were they trying to tell me now? And where I'm at now and in regardless to understanding narrative as it relates to personal identity and faith is that it's something that's situated like based on the Bible. So if it's not based on the Bible, I'm not with it. If it's a pastor trying to tell me that, um, listen to what I'm saying, so do as I say and not as I do type mentality, that's not the direction to go. Um, that is a Pharisee and a Sadducee if it's nothing else. It's not to say that anyone will be perfect or should be perfect, but there's um, a certain thing that we should be doing in relation to faith. And the last thing I say kind of in regards to faith and the narrative power that it has is to think about the cross as a symbol, right? We can think about so many different symbols, like the peace signs. Uh, we can think about the W standing for like West side. We can think about the E for East side. Like we can think about people flexing their muscles for strength, so on and so forth. Like signs have their own power and have their own meaning. So when we think about narration or narrative power, like what brings a greater sign of hope um, than the cross itself? And this been Easter Sunday, like we're recording before Easter Sunday, just kind of brings chills for me to think about the symbol of the cross is not a symbol of death which what it stood for during the time of Jesus execution. But now it stands for hope because he was able to conquer death. So to know that what Jesus is calling me to do is to live life to the fullest, but the fullest intent is to live life for him, to be a fisherman of men, to be someone who is loving, someone who is kind, someone who is fighting for social justice, someone that is above everything, a servant and humble, that's the narrative I think Jesus is calling me to, to be with my faith. So that's faith and narration for me. Beautiful. That's beautiful. 
I'm just super, super moved by by both of you right now. I'm curious, maybe being maybe this this question probably comes out of my whiteness. Um, how your faith, how your ability to for both of you maybe to get clear on who you're really serving, like what you're really about and who you're really serving in your life. Like, how does that help you deal with all of the toxicity and judgment and damaging messages about what it is to be a black male in the United States? Like, thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Hard conversations are hard for a reason. It can be uncomfortable to reach out to someone who is showing signs of distress, especially if they are a friend, family member, or student. Cognito could help you build the confidence to have these hard conversations. Cognito is a 30-minute online training simulation course provided by the CWC to help you notice signs of distress and appear, learn how to talk about these signs, practice sharing your concerns, and motivate them to seek help. Visit counseling.ufl.edu forward slash cognito to learn more and get started. Caring starts with you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can go first, but I, I think this is it's good. Um, so we love this because uh, it speaks to something I was going to ask about. But I think for me, my narrative was shaped by my works, right? So when I was in a cult, it was how much work can I put in? Because this work, not only is it going to please God, but it's also going to expand the kingdom and all these people are going to come because all this work I'm doing and I'm out at three or four in the morning passing out tracks and doing this and whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, But then one day I just felt like, oh, this man that I was trying to please, I let him down and he he let me know I let him down and it broke me in a way that I was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm this is backwards. I'm not supposed to be working to please him. I'm not supposed to be working, working, working just to to earn something because it's the American way, right? Like, yo, capitalism at its finest, you got to earn, you got to earn, you got to earn, you got to earn. And so I think what it, how that resonated for me was like, okay, this cult leader, I didn't say at that at the time, as I look back at it now, was displeased with something I was doing for him. His displeasure rocked my world in such a way that it didn't necessarily cause me to lose faith, but thankfully led me to realizing like, oh, shoot, I'm barking up the wrong tree here. The approval that I'm looking for, what I need to be getting is not something that I should be trying to find in this man's like attaboys and congratulations. Um, and so I think moving into like, because it took me away from blackness, like before I, did, I was in, I was a black Panther. I was living in Oakland. I was at Berkeley. I was doing all these different things and I was for the people. I was about the community. Then I get to this cult and it becomes we don't see color and da, 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 and evil people do evil things and stop being mad at this stuff, which is OK. It's OK not to be mad at white people all your life or just other people, others. It's It's OK. But I think the idea of diminishing my ethnicity, diminishing my background, diminishing who I was as a person and my the experience that I had as a black man in order to promote this faith and in order to forgive and forget again, which has some merit, was, I think, backwards. And he was in a place where he was trying to promote this idea of losing your cultural identity with which Jesus himself never did or like, you know what I'm saying? And for the sake of being something better and which I feel like was a Western mentality again, whereas I needed to lose my blackness and my identity as a black man in order to please God, in order to be better for people. And so I think that that dynamic, in a sense, it hindered me for the, the years that I was there because I could have did more work in terms of finding who I was, helping other people identify themselves, helping people identify themselves in this faith. And then it took me, I mean, you know, again, like 
10 years after leaving that institution to where I'm at a place where I'm realizing like it's okay to be authentically me and to help others be authentically them, whatever their cultural background is, whatever their quote unquote race is or whatever, while they also dive into these teachings of Jesus Christ, you know, um, and then it goes on to political, political stuff. And it goes into personal, you know, there's all these different webs that this goes into, um, but just this rooting and grounding groundedness of knowing my narrative, knowing my identity, knowing who I am, and then having that to contrast against religion, politics, culture, the dominant narrative, you know, angry black man, whatever. There's so many directions it goes in, but I can go on, but I'll stop. So can you got it? All right, but um, three words pop into mind for me to kind of keep things in the perspective. Um, mercy, grace, and uh, reframe. Mercy is him not giving to us what we deserve. Grace is him extending to us more than we deserve. And reframe is kind of what he does to my mind. The more I abide in him or the more I engage with the things that he's calling me to. Um, so to break them down in the ways that I've been act, uh, a part of them or actionable is that his mercy is not allowing the bad things that I've done. Like, don't get me wrong. I haven't gotten to this point that I am, although I'm still young, without doing some traumatizing stuff to other people or placing violence onto them as well. But he helps me to see that just as much as I can cause harm to someone else, they can cause harm to me. And it's uh, to realize that in him, we are equal, but in him, we can all be forgiven and the sins of that can be washed away. But it's to do that next step. And I think that next step is what we kind of forget, kind of how John mentioned. We always say forgive and forget, but that forgive and forget portion is involved with an act of reconciliation. So I need to go to the person that I feel like I've wronged and engage with them and let them know like the ways in which I feel like I've wronged them to be able to move forward and push things behind us. Um, the second portion of this is grace. Like he has extended so much grace to me is beyond my understanding from a country boy to Mississippi to um, a guy that's now living a little bit comfortable, uh, still able to help out my fam whenever I can and inside our office and the School of Communication and Journalism at the University of Florida. Like not many people get to have that opportunity. A lot of people want that opportunity. And that is just something he is allowed to happen because of how great he is. There's nothing special and unique about me that allows me to be here but him. The third thing would be refrain. Like, um, there was a lot about me that I was told is bad, wrong, or weird. And I took the Ephesians challenge one day, and I think it was like, read Ephesians 3 and look to see what it is that he claimed me as. But the more I read the word, the more I realize like how God identifies me. God doesn't look at me as a sinner. He doesn't look at me as like all the types of names that I've been called inside my life. Like he doesn't look down upon me and be like, you're just poor. You're just dumb. You're just stupid. He looks at me and he sees his son. He sees his child. He sees something that's beautiful. And it's like to know that there is someone that not only wants a relationship with me, but looks at me in those ways and looks to allow me to be something that's useful for them. It, it's inspiring for me. It's something that's 
great. It's something, again, going back to the conversation I had with Dr. Kelleher, it's like an investment in me. Like God is investing in me. Yes, he's invested in everyone else, but he's investing in me and little old me. And see, I, I, it's, it's good to, for me to hear perspective in sense of like counter narrative, right? So the idea is like you through your faith are able to reconcile the things that you've heard about you, to be able to confront the things that you've heard about you, to be able to see the narrative that somebody else may have tried to give you by labeling you, whatever the case may be, but because your faith that allows you to buck against that stuff, to not let that stuff Maybe like, yeah, I mean, like uh, Power Man, uh, Power Man, what's uh, I'm a comic book guy and I'm losing my names right now. But you're just like Luke Cage. The words just bounce off you like bullets. You know what I'm saying? Boom, boom, boom. Because you know who you are, you're assured of that and you're able to rest in that. And I think that's the issue with a lot of people outside of even faith, outside even just the black community is that the narrative that's created. You know what I mean? Even now with the, the the violence that's happening to the Asian community, you know, like there was a narrative that was created that Asian people, as although there's billions and they go from there's a vast continent right and certain people are the reason why coronavirus exists and so now let's do them violence and let's do them harm so these people have bought into this idea and this narrative that these people are the cause of me having to wear a mask these people are the cause of me having to to be six feet away from people these are the people that that are keeping me from being able to travel and live my life right and so because people have bought into this narrative and this idea there's communities of people that are being affected and i think that that's an extreme case where violence has acted upon someone. But when you have a situation where your everyday life, you've been given a narrative, somebody has told you what you are, what you're going to be and, and, and made a road for you and paved a road for you. And you're not able to have the wherewithal to withstand that stuff, or you don't have something that builds you up, whether it's your faith, whether it's granny, whether it's whoever, like somebody is consistently pouring into you so that those voices and those, those words and the, the narrative doesn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, it could be hard, you know? And so I just I, I think that's why the work you're doing is important. That's the work that we're doing at CWC, why these things are so important, because if somebody reads your work and like, oh, my God, like I had no idea that I was even falling victim to these things that this 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 man has written in, in his, his projects. When they come see us, when they come see a counselor, a therapist, a psychologist, they're like, yo, like un- unearthing all these things, digging through all these things, having these conversations are it's allowing me to see how the narrative, other people's voices, the world, the news, the media, these different things have created something for me that is not true, that I don't have to ascribe to, that I don't have to be a part of. Like, I don't have to be, we talked, Sarah and I talked about this last conversation, my two, the, the, the you know, the, the angel of the devil on your shoulders, I had Theo Huxable and Tupac. Like, that's, that's what I had growing up. Like, there was no in-between, there was no John Parker, it was just these two guys, which one of these guys are you going to be? And so at different times, I was one or the other. You know what I mean? I, when I was with the squares at school, I was kicking it. I was still, I was doing my thing. When I had to hit the streets and do something that I, you know, maybe shouldn't have done, I was with, you know what I'm saying, the other guys. And so not even knowing at growing up until I was a 30-something-year-old man that I didn't have to be either of those was like, like my brain exploded. Like I was 30-something years old when I realized it's okay to like Vibrams and I can have the shoes, the, show, the, the shoes with the toes in them and I can go rock climbing and I can do stuff that wasn't, you know, that was ethically appropriate, ethnically appropriate growing up. And it was okay. And I'm like, imagine how many other people, like I got friends that didn't make it out of their 20s because they were dead and following along and doing things that the world's narrative, that the music's narrative, that the TV's narrative like gave to them. Um, and I think what you're saying and what you're doing is so important, man. I, um, my last story, I, I get back to you, but I was, I was in Vegas with a friend who's from Afghanistan. His cousin 
grew up in Germany and through the process of hanging out, he was like, the more I drink, the better my English gets. So I was like, all right, so I don't know what this means. Are you going to say something you should say? What's going on? But he said, after hanging out with you, I met you and you're black, but you're not inward black. And his cousin was like, my, bro, my buddy was like, oh, oh, oh hey, 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 man, hey, hey, hey. But what he meant was, like, I have seen growing up in Germany and being Af- from Afghanistan, being Afghani, like, I have seen portrayals of what black people are. You, you know, and you don't talk like them. You don't walk like them. You don't speak like them. You're not carrying guns. You're not sagging your pants. You know, so he had a narrative of what I was going to be even before he met me. And when he met me, he was thrown off and didn't know how to reconcile this because, like, all I've ever known of people that look like you that come from America, you've thrown that out the window. And getting back to like the narrative and the work you're doing and things that are happening, like it is such an important piece for people not to succumb to narratives, to not get caught up in the narratives that other people have drawn for them. Uh, and even even positive narratives, like trying to live up to something that's not you. Like I'm not like I'm not whoever person that is great. I'm not Barack Obama. I'm not. I'm John Parkin. I got my own things to do. I got my own ideas. I got my own ideologies. And so just really from what I mean, what I'm getting from you is like a reminder to just continue to move in the vein in the course that's set for me and to ascribe to the narrative that's positive, that's beneficial, that helps me be a better person, a better husband, a better friend, a better father, uh, a better coworker, uh, and to put aside narratives and to do more work to let go of narratives that don't fit me, be them positive or negative. Um, most definitely. If I could, I'd like to take a moment real quick to do two things. One, just do a quick subpar about space. Um, I think right now there isn't a ton of space being allowed for conversations like this or for people to have that ability to engage or wrestle with those things. Since the world is so fast-paced, they either have, not even either, right? It's not even a choice. The narratives are just kind of forced onto them and they kind of have to accept them as they are. So um, we're constantly being fed these particular things, but we don't have any tools or resources to understand how to engage outside of that. But one of the things that's dope about being situated here at UF and those that are at other colleges and stuff like that is that we have particular resources like um, for us, the CWC and different events that people may host to create space for us to be able to engage in these things. So um Something that I've been forth the opportunity to do is to partner with Amy and um, Dr. West uh, through you all's department. And that's to create an event that's for racial healing and trauma. It's going to be an annual event. This year is going to particularly focus on Black women and just the narratives that people have created. But it's going to use a unique means of creativity where people have the chance to tell stories, prose or maybe even elect songs so they can express the way that uh, violence has been infected on them, but also call people to a higher way of dialoguing with one another to have an opportunity to see what it looks like to not only hear that story, but engage in that particular space. Um, I think the more that we can create spaces to change those narratives, the more we can change the spaces around us. And that only starts by us looking to direct, uh, directly impact our immediate community, because I can't do nothing being located here in Gainesville, Florida, um, back home in Mississippi, back home in Tennessee, so on and so forth. Don't get me wrong, the work that I can do can build the bridges, they can make those necessary connections, but it honestly starts with space. And space can be the time, it 
can be the physical energy that is necessary, but it also can just be the openness, kind of how you said earlier in the conversation, to just listen to someone. There's not enough listening and the portrayal of what people think they can be or should be, rather than us telling us telling them what they are and what they should be because of the environment that they are, because of what they look like. We have already given people markers of who they are. Like when me and you walk into the room, they're like, yeah, he a black man. Like uh, what type of black man is he going to be? Is he going to be a W.E.D. Dubois, um, like elite 10 type cat? Or is he going to be like I'm walking down slanging type cat? Like it's like, all right, you have already given me these descriptions. But who's to say I need to be either or to fit that model? There are so many things and so many beautiful, gifted people that I've came across that don't get the chance to bless the world with their gift because they don't have the space to do so. And it's like the what is it saying? The the grave is full of wasted potential or something like that. You know what I mean? And like and in some situations, people just don't even have the opportunity to even reach potential to speak, to to gain the information and the knowledge. But anyway, wow. I was thinking about to really open up space for one another. And I, I think right now I'm speaking as a therapist, but also as someone from the dominant white culture who's socialized into that world, like the the willingness to not know, the mm-hmm. willingness to enter a space with curiosity and to set aside the need to know at all. Um, and, and man, when you're, I mean, I don't think it's good for anybody that kind of like Western Eurocentric value that if you don't already know, get out of the way, like you gotta know, you gotta know, you gotta know it right. You gotta get it right. You gotta be as perfect as possible within how we've defined perfection and just that, just how powerful it is. Yeah, to, to be willing to set aside knowing anything. I think some people just don't deal well with the gray area, like the unknown, right? I mean, I, I, I walk down the street to an unnamed location to spend some time with my children after work. And people are like, oh, my God, like, and just when I had these conversations, oh, you're such a great dad. Why? Because I'm sitting here enjoying, enjoying my beverage while my kids throw a Frisbee. And then I'm not cursing or yelling or fighting or like, what makes me such a great dad? Like, and I know what they're saying, what they mean. But it's just like, just observe and mind your business and then go home and talk about it. You know what I'm saying? But you don't have to <laughs> come in my space. And now I have to do all this talking and explaining what I'm trying to mind my, my, my business because I'm not the N-I-G-G-A black that you've seen on TV, like my man from Afghanistan uh, by, by way of Germany. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, I think what you're saying, Sarah, is like one of those things where it's like, what, what does it look like to come to a table and be given a seat and not assume a seat like, hey, you you can stand here and watch and observe, but you don't have to sit here. You ain't got to talk. You ain't got to be involved. Just listen and learn and grow. But sometimes I don't know if people dominate cultures. They don't know how to do that sometimes because they're used to being either the center of attention or holding the weight in the room or being the one to speak up or whatever. And so some, I think sometimes stuff just gets lost in the sauce. Um, and we have that's a part of the, the space and the teaching like, hey, feel free not to talk. Feel free just to listen. Feel free just to take notes and then go home and process. And then when you get the space and opportunity again, now you can maybe ask some questions, but maybe that was a tangent, maybe. I think it's it's another example of how those dominant narratives, people trying to define you, to fit you into something prescribed, predetermined is all around you. Like no matter where you go, 
um, you're encountering that. And depending on where you go, you may be much more visible that you could be visible to a cop. You could be visible to a bunch of people out enjoying beers or ice cream. Um, and, and you're still kind of, people are still trying to figure out where you fit rather than just being curious. <laughs> Or just letting you be. Just or let just me be. leaving you alone and letting <laughs> right, you right. be. Yeah. Don't poke the bear. Let the bear do yeah. what he do. He's over there getting his honey. Don't, yeah. don't, just don't approach the bear. Just let the yeah. bear. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering for both of you, because I know we've been talking for almost an hour today. Um, what would what feels important to say for this conversation? And then if if y'all feel like you got energy for part two, um, by all means, I don't even I don't even need to be there. Um <laughs> But, you know, just it, I'm thinking about like a student, maybe on our campus, maybe another campus who is is black, maybe male, maybe female, maybe, you know, maybe non-gender binary. But what are some you said you're doing this event coming up, Rakeem, and I wonder if you can throw out the date of that or any other kind of detailed information about that while we're here. But also like. And John, as a therapist, you may have some ideas too, but like, what are some creative ways that, uh, you know, someone might want to explore this for themselves? Like, like whether they share it publicly or not, like, what are some tools? What are some tangible formats where someone might start to like, try to tease this stuff out and get a perspective on it? For the racial and trauma event, it won't actually happen until over the summer on June the 21st, if I'm not mistaken. And that'll be the actual date of the event. That'll be two information sessions that should happen May the 10th and then May the 12th. And that'll be the second week once the summer semester summer a term starts okay can they find info on the cwc website to follow up about this too yes perfect perfect what about yeah what about like tangible things like i'm inspired you know i'm listening to you guys i'm inspired like i'm gonna turn off my camera and go about my day (laughs) like what (laughs) where what can i do I have some things, but I was going to say, Rakeem, do you have any books that you would recommend um, or any type of papers that someone could study or pick up if we're thinking about students and identity and identity formation and narrative and all that type of stuff? All right, Newman, this solid. You go and give me one moment. Okay. Okay. And we can, Rakeem, we can also, we'll link to anything you want in the show notes. So you don't have to give us a long list here, but yeah, go for it. And while he thinks I, I was, I would say that I think that if my experience means anything, it's just re- people, college age especially, just really being intentional about having this conversation about identity, having this conversation about narrative. Like, am I living up to someone else's standards or direction or ideas? Am I a student that's about to harm myself because I'm not getting the grades that I think my parents want for me? Am I a first-generation college student whose parents migrated from Cuba to give me the best idea and they want me to be a doctor and I really just want to be an artist. And so they've they've given me this narrative and created this thing for me that now I feel compelled to have to do. And it can be anything further from who I really am and what I really want to do. And how do I have conversations with these people, with my parents, with my aunties, with my uncles, with my brothers and sisters 
Uh, and, you know, that's when we can help, of course, with those type of things. Um, but I just think that really not being 30 something years old and coming to a place where you're like, oh, I don't have to be this thing that I was told to be and made to be and shaped to be all of my life um, and coming to that place sooner than later and knowing that we're always evolving, that we're always growing, that we should always be growing, should always be evolving and who you are at 17, 18, 19, 20 shouldn't be who you are at 30, 31, 32, 33. There's some good traits that maybe can carry over, but we should be growing. We should be becoming something different. We, we're at a different stage of, of, of growth and development uh, and we should be somebody different. And we should, the things that you couldn't tell me weren't going to change about me at 20, the ideas I had, the principles I had, the foundations that I had, well, those things are so shattered and destroyed and gone. Um, but again, it's a part of narrative. It's a part of realizing who I am and who I'm becoming and the life that I want to live. And unfortunately, I've had to have a lot of moments where like, I don't care about people. I don't care about what they say. I don't care about what they think. I'm just going to enjoy myself and I'm going to do me. And I've had to get rid of a lot of the voices and a lot of shedding of a lot of the narratives in order to get to that place. And everybody's not comfortable doing that. But on some level of self-care, you have to get to a place where you can just like shed the layers, let that stuff go, create the narrative for yourself. Again, look into some narrative therapy if you want to and kind of, you know, you can use Wikipedia for that, I guess, if you just have to, uh, you know, just pick up a book uh, and, and, you know, or a, a PDF download and kind of just look through that. But I think that really creating that narrative and a trajectory and figuring out where you want to go for the next two, three years, two, three months, two, three weeks, whatever, uh, but being intentional about that, I think is, is very beneficial. All right. So a couple of authors that um, I feel I live and die by, one would be Brene Brown. The second would be Shonda Rhimes. Three books, I think, that would be um, influential and knowing that counter-narratives is something that's developing. One would be Counter-Narratives by Godal. Second one would be How Change Works by John. I forget his last name. I blanked out on the third one, but that's what I could come up with at the moment. And Brene Brown just writes a series about the way that we conceptualize things like shame and courage and really help us to deal with the overall tones of these particular words and how we can change them into action items for our lives. And Shonda kind of takes us on a journey through what it means to make the most meaning of um, the particular situations in our life. Oh, that's what it was. The last one was Love Does by Bob Goff. I was just going to say how much I appreciate this. And I, I think that you both shared examples of relationships, people, interactions, or just an encounter with other people's ideas that woke you up enough to start questioning. And it's like, once you just can start questioning or you can see or get even the, the faintest glimmer that these layers that you've been wearing almost your whole life were, are, were given to you rather than inborn, like deepest truths, it can really begin a process that like John was saying, so much shedding, right? Like you have to shed the false, you have to shed the inherited to, to, to be able to um, see like what's, what's left, what's at the root, what's um, like, what's untarnished. Uh, but, but that you both cited so many examples of, of people who helped start that process for you. And they weren't all easy like that, that experience with the cult leader sounds pretty traumatic in a lot of ways. 
and yet it it woke you up to something uh, that you're you're that's still unfolding, but that you've really benefited a lot from what happened afterward. So yeah, I I hope that I hope that this conversation might plant that seed for others. Yeah. Or came any any like closing words of wisdom or even thoughts that you might have for, you know, they always say, what would you tell your 20 year old self or anything like that? But just anything that you kind of would think in terms of this narrative, thinking through counter narratives, um, speaking to power, whatever that looks like, just just for the people listening. Narratives only have the power that you give them. And power is only something that you can give someone. So don't give someone something that is freely yours. Allow yourself the space to cultivate, define, and tell you who you are. Because there will be no one else that can understand or engage with your mind as much or as well as you can. So if you have the the power to define who you are, you have the power to act upon that. So create a narrative for you that tells you what success is and not no one else mm, where the snaps where the hand claps i know amen corner i know Ooh. they can't see me dancing over here mm. 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 i think that's a good place to stop yep. thank you both so much thanks for listening you can find cwc talks on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever podcasts are found please leave us a rating and review us Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.